0: Greetings, PPL Familia. I'm Paul Williams, President and CEO of Project for Pride and Living. Welcome to the Race, Place, and Policy podcast. PPL has created this space as a way of engaging with our community on the wide range of issues impacting our work on a daily basis. It's our firm belief that the complex issues around race, place, and policy are central to this dialogue. So we thank you for joining us. This month, our conversation is about affordable housing, particularly in terms of how a home helps address racial equity. I'm joined by my good friend, Chris Coleman, now the president and CEO of Twin Cities Habitat for Humanity, and the former mayor of the city of St. Paul. Welcome, Chris. Great to have you here.
1: Glad to be here, Paul. Thank you so much.
0: So, I I actually want to start by talking about your your background and, and kind of what brought you to the work of community service and, and public service. You've been working on community improvement from a lot of different angles over over, over these last several decades.
1: Well you know that's where to begin on that journey. Um, you know obviously as mayor we worked on a thousand different issues and ways to build community and and build healthy families and and uh, you know you had all the aspects of everything that you did from uh, um, from snow plowing to uh, you know to stadium building, and you and you, you and I went through all of that together. Uh, but in in terms of housing and how I ended up at at Habitat, there's a couple of things. First of all, just fortuitous timing. Uh, as I was leaving the mayor's office, Sue Hague, my predecessor here at Habitat, uh, was retiring, and uh, there, you know, with anything, you, there no matter how, the the job has to be open if you if in order for you to get it. Uh, but as I looked through what I, what I most cared about and what I, and ultimately what I thought was the kind of the bedrock solution to a lot of other challenges that we face in our community, uh, it came back to housing for me. It came back to the stability of knowing where you're going to lay your head at night. It came back to uh, having, you know, you know this is before the pandemic, but, you know, just the place to do your homework. And then it became a place to actually learn, uh, and it became, you know, your everything: your your yoga studio, your, um, you know, your office, your your school, uh, home. Just home is just so fundamental to all the other healthcare challenges, the inequality that we see in our community, and wealth, and and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, financial disparities um you know just it it just was a natural fit for me ultimately uh to be working on these things and it was it was in some ways an extension of what I had done uh, in my prior life and community but also it was um it was the the bedrock foundation of everything that we had worked on
0: yeah and and uh, so I actually want to take you even farther back so I mean you and I share some geographic background uh, I grew up in the Rondo and, and Frogtown neighborhoods, and uh, I think you have roots in, in uh, Frogtown for sure. Say a little bit more about that. And, and then also, um, when I first bumped into you after grade school, um, uh, you were you were living and working in Frogtown. So just say a little right. bit more about that.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, the, the Williamses and the Colemans and, the, you know, have, do, do have our deep roots in the, in the Twin Cities for sure, uh, in St. Paul. My, my dad was a, a Frogtown kid. His dad was, uh, worked as a, uh, a shop clerk in the Great Northern Railroad um, up on, off of Dale Street. Um, so he was always living. His, he was born in 997 Thomas. My, the first house I bought was 885 Edmond, so a block away from where my dad grew up. But my mom grew up uh, in, in Cornmeal Valley in, in, in Rondo. Uh, you know moving around from apartment to apartment and um, originally where where Sears is now. Um, mm-hmm. you know this was the this is the heart of the Rondo community and and the heart of the poorest part of the Rondo community. Um, and so you know, it was always I was always very aware of those you know those communities and and the, my roots in those communities. Um, and as I was growing up, you know I had the stability of home. I had the stability of home ownership. And it only was later, after I really started understanding more completely uh, how how we have gotten into the situation that we're in, did I realize you know the reason I was able to buy a home when I was in law school uh, was because I was able to borrow a down payment from my mom. Uh, the reason why this this young this woman who had grown up dirt poor in in Rondo had money to lend me to buy a house was because when my dad came back from world war ii he got to buy a house on the gi bill Mm. uh and build that equity uh and then as the family grew they went from a small house in um in uh highland park to a bigger house off of west Seventh to a bigger house up in crocus hill uh and and that was that wealth accumulation allowed us to um, her to help her kids buy houses and and that's my so my first house was was in the heart of Frogtown and then I became a community activist working on housing issues in Frogtown.
0: Yeah, I, I remember that uh, and again in, in uh, this was probably the mid 90s early 90s even uh, and uh, uh, you were active I think in the Frogtown Community Council and yeah. and uh, doing a lot of work around and and actually ironically PPL back in those days actually was buying and rehabbing single-family homes and and then operating them as rental properties so that was kind of an early entrepreneurial uh, venture for for PPL but well let, let's come back to your your work uh, uh, and kind of the transition from the city to habitat and, and can you talk a little bit about uh, um, you know kind of what are the what's the core of habitats work uh, these days and 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 what are you uh, what are you focused on?
1: most in that work well if we start off with the premise that housing is a continuum that starts you know uh, in the kind of solving the housing equation is a continuum from unsheltered homelessness uh on the one end to getting folks into home ownership uh, on the other end of it we're on that end in that side of the equation we are focused in on on home ownership we're focused on the multi-generational wealth building that uh, that occurs because of that the stability that occurs Uh, because of home ownership Uh, and so you know while we are you know in community with with folks working on the entire spectrum our our particular piece of it is the home ownership piece of it but we went through um, in the four years that I've been here we have really shifted our efforts uh, I shouldn't say shifted but really focused our efforts on racial equity in housing uh we had for years been very proud of the fact and bragged about the fact that 85 percent of our families were families of color uh, but when we disaggregated the data and broke it down we realized that we weren't serving the foundational african-american foundational black households uh in our community uh, they were among our largest applicant pool um, but the least likely or the second least likely to actually achieve home ownership through our our programming uh and so you know just to, be clear when I talk about foundational black households, I'm talking about folks that trace their ancestry to enslaved Africans, um, multi-generational black families, people that have been here and have quite frankly, been the victims of historic patterns of discrimination in housing, redlining, restrictive covenants, building freeways through through uh, vibrant African-American neighborhoods uh, and taking away home ownership. Um, so we, we said, you know, we need to step back and we need to understand why we're not serving that community, what we need to do to change that and ultimately how we can propel uh, the equality and, e- and equity in home ownership in the twin cities 75 uh, percent of white households own their own home uh, for foundational black households that's probably closer to 20 right. uh so we really have got to to accelerate our work uh we have come out of the gate just in the last couple of weeks with a special purpose credit program which will target resources for foundational black households um it you know might come in the form of a of a additional down payment assistance it might come in uh in credit repair programs It might come in in different ways but we have a little bit more flexibility now to be race specific um how we said it we never had problem call, calling out race when we were discriminating uh but somehow when it came to uh, try to uh you know uh, to uh, to mitigate the damage that was done uh then all of a sudden we weren't supposed to talk about race anymore um, but HUD rules and others have changed to allow us to be a little bit more uh, uh, intentional about who we serve, and and uh, for us, it's the foundation of Black households. We're still going to continue to serve all the other people that we've served. We're not walking away from that, but we just are very we're very aware of where we fell short. So those those disparities
0: that you referenced, 75 actually 77 percent home ownership rate for the white community, 20 25 percent for for the, 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 the generational uh, black families that you're referencing the highest, I think that's the highest gap in the country. Um, and I always I actually want to take a moment to point out that nationally, that rate is about 70, in the low 70 percentages for white households and about 44% for black households nationwide. So there's no doubt that the Twin Cities are are you know have the widest disparity. It ain't no picnic, right? In a lot of no. other parts of the country as well. So we've got a big, big problem, uh, uh, kind of
1: across across the country. But um, well, and, I, and, I, and it's interesting because I think if you know, I, I, if you know Kirsten Elligard's work uh, mapping prejudice through the sure. University of Minnesota, really looking at those restrictive covenants and the redlining practices. Um, you know those practices really became kind of standard in communities across the country uh, about the same time that we were getting the diaspora from the south moving to the north uh, and so as we were getting more and more african americans moving to our communities it was when we they got really good at keeping them from buying houses in, in except for in certain neighborhoods uh, but then the banks wouldn't lend to them so i mean this is this is i asked kirsten once i said you know it, it, I don't mean to, to, to minimize this, but it seems like the reason why we're the worst in the nation was really one of timing uh, almost. And, and she said, yeah, it was, you know, we just, it, it, if you, there weren't very many black families living in the Twin Cities in 1910, but if if you if you were, you were as likely to live in South Minneapolis by the lakes as you were up in North Minneapolis. Once those restrictive covenants and practices came into place to, to tell people where they could or couldn't live, um, it really, it, it made it impossible for Black families uh, to purchase, except for in Rondo or in in uh, parts of the North Side.
0: Well, and and certainly that's my family's. It, my my actually my grandparents, uh, my aunts and uncles, my extended family all owned their homes in in and around Rondo. I think I don't know this for sure, but I think we've actually lost ground in in recent years in terms of Black home ownership. Um, oh. and, 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 and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, you're right, I mean, it, access to the GI Bill, which you, you referenced earlier, um, uh, uh, the restrictive covenants, all were foundational drivers of those inequities. What else is going on that that's, that's impacting those disparities still?
1: Well, we 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 saw this in the uh, in the '90s and the odds, you know, with the predatory lending practices. So we gave out, you know, no doc loans and you know, easy money, and people could buy their house. But there was never any kind of intentionality, you know. Boy, this family is going to spend sixty percent of their of their income on this house. That's not a sustainable model. I mean, that's why we're at at Habitat uh, you pay 30% of your household income for that mortgage. And then we make up the difference between what the house cost and what the family can afford. But we had all of these practices that were designed to strip wealth. And so that's, you're right. It is worse than it was, uh, even, um, um, it, it seems to be continually getting worse because we figured out ways to strip wealth out, out of families. Uh, and then you, you know, Marvin Anderson, I, I you know is is one of my favorite human beings uh, the guy that started rondo days and former state law librarian and, and he uh he spoke to our 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 staff one day and he said you know when when we built the freeway through the rondo community um it didn't just take our homes away it took our hope away sure. uh and that generational multi-generational trauma uh is still very present uh in our community and that sense of you know, home ownership, buy a house and you know just like my grandfather, you know they'll, they'll take it away from me and pay pennies on the dollar. Uh, there's just a lot of there's a lot of factors. Trauma, trauma not being least among them.
0: Yeah, well, and that's a uh, it's a powerful reminder. And I, you both, you and I were involved in uh, when you were mayor uh, and just after I had left uh, my role as deputy mayor in St. Paul. Uh, we were part of uh, the formal apology. Yep. Uh, to uh, to the Rondo community, which was um, certainly symbolic, but I think
1: quite meaningful actually. Um, so, it, say, say a little bit. Yeah, yeah, well, I just I was going. That was one of the most powerful things that that happened to me in twelve years as mayor. Was was being able to you know remember sitting in our conference room, uh, talking with the with the group that had the plans for the Rondo Memorial Plaza, and just looking at. At uh, at the group and saying, have, has the city ever apologized for its role in the displacement of Black families in our community? Uh, and and through that became the the formal apology. The Department of Transportation and and Charlie Zelli, uh you know, joined with us. And and you can say that's symbolic, but. You know, think about when you get in a fight with your partner, you know, you, you first got to say, you're sorry. Yeah. Before you can move on.
0: Yeah. 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 That's very true. Um, well, say, say a little bit more about, uh, about some of the tools that, uh, Habitat's using. I know you all have been, uh, really, um, extended your, your ability to, to provide low cost mortgages, and you're working in partnership with other organizations, PPL included, in right. in bringing low-cost mortgages to to uh, to homeowners, first-time homeowners, and certainly BIPOC homeowners. And a good portion of who we work with actually are both BIPOC uh, as well as you know foundational uh, Black households. But but that seems like a particularly important tool.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it really is. Uh, you know, again. So the ba- the basic model that people know about Habitat for Humanity is we you know we we take a piece of land we put a foundation in we build a house above it using volunteers um, and then we match families to that house and if the house is valued at two hundred fifty thousand dollars but uh, a family using thirty percent of their income can only afford one hundred seventy five thousand uh, dollars then we come in with resources to close that gap so. Um, it could be, it's, it's a lot of different sources layered on each other. So Minnesota housing, um, you know, and the the resources for first time home buyers that they have, uh, federal funding, and ultimately then the money that we collect from, from our very generous community, uh, that supports our work. Um, so, so, but as, as we, you know, using that traditional model, we were doing 50, 50, 55, 60 houses a year in a big year. Um, and and that work was very important, but it wasn't closing the gap in, in home ownership and inequality in this community. Uh, so before I came on board, uh, Habitat started a relationship with Bremer Bank uh, that allows people to go out into the community and, and buy using a real estate agent, uh, a non-Habitat developed house, uh, can buy anywhere in the seven county metro area, um, but using the, the Habitat financing mechanism. Uh, and that allowed us, before COVID, we were on schedule to, to, uh, to do 125 homes. Our target this year is closing at on 129 homes, and then we're hoping to do 20% growth year in and year out, you know, coming in the next, you know, during the course of our current strategic plan. Having said all that, really laser focused on racial equity and housing. And, and, and that means being in partnership with PPL, being in partnership with other organizations, uh, and helping helping build our pipeline Families that can use that can come in and use our product, uh, and and see that there is a pathway to home ownership where they may not have thought that there was one before.
0: And just for our listeners, uh, some of you may know that uh, PPL works with hundreds of of uh, households, again primarily households of color, uh, doing what's called uh, home stretch uh, counseling. It's it's pre getting folks ready to become homeowners, and it's. Uh, Financial education and budgeting and credit and uh, and all of that and and so um, and we're in the midst of a of an expansion of our home ownership work again largely as a wealth building strategy and so that uh, that includes a kind of a new pool of of uh, down payment assistance uh, but I think uh, the year before last I think we placed upwards of. 30, 35 uh, households of color in uh, in home ownership for the first time uh, this year. Uh, we got a wonderful commitment from a from a donor to to double that, and we're already well past that 60 mark. We're upwards of 90 uh, right now, and probably will surpass 100 by the end of the year. And again, in in several cases, we partner with Habitat on that mortgage product to again make it make it even more in reach. For, uh, for for lower income households of color, particularly Black families,
1: absolutely. And 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 again, that's you know people need to understand that that is the game changer for those families. That that is the you know the difference between kind of you know continuing struggling you know in, in rental housing and continuing to have you know housing instability, which leads to other forms of instability. Um, that this this getting folks to that ultimate goal. Uh, you know, we always talk about home ownership as the American dream. Well, it hasn't been a dream for a lot of folks because it's just been so far out of reach. Uh, But, you know, like, like many uh, folks, I suspect uh, the only wealth that they have is the equity that they have in their home. And that's the wealth that they get to pass. You know, they might use it to send their kids to college. They might use it to start a business. They might use it to, you know, for retirement Uh, or they might help their kids buy a home uh, themselves. But, the but, it, you know, my my phrase, Paul, is that every dollar spent on affordable housing is a dollar well spent, but a dollar spent on affordable rental is palliative, and a dollar spent on affordable ownership is curative. Uh, and you know, we need to work on the entire spectrum, but we also have, may have to make sure that we are working to get families into home ownership.
0: Yeah, and I want to I want to come back to that actually, and and get your ideas on on kind of policy changes that you think need to need to be made, but. I'm also curious. Uh, one, in terms of how has um, the Habitat audience, um, your your kind of donor base, your constituency, your external constituency, how has this uh, resonated, and how have how have they responded to this? Because this is a, this is an unusual push. You you referenced earlier Habitat's historic model. Um, it, again, has been valuable. We've had one of the best Habitat chapters. In the country, if not the world, here in the Twin Cities for quite some time, you're taking that to a different level. Though you 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 have introduced equity, racial equity, uh, kind of in a very purposeful and intentional way. How is how is the audience, Habitat's uh, audience, kind of responding to that?
1: Well, you know, a little background when I when I came in, you know, the the organization had been working on you know diversity, equity, inclusion work, like you know most organizations have in some fashion or another some deeper than others you know we had all of our staff do the IDI analysis all of our board members go through that we had but I was working with our consultant and uh, we had an incident and and as she was talking to me she said well you know Habitat's an organization that cares about equity but they're not an equity organization and I I was I was struck by that and I said well that's what we're going to change and so we because of that, and as an outgrowth of that, we have developed, uh, you know, as a very specific tenet of our strategic plan and our mission statement, is racial equity in housing. Um, because if we're not, if we're not honest about, you know, the 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 reasons why we have gotten ourselves into these into this challenge in the first place, uh, and the intentionality of the discrimination that occurred, we're never going to be able to get our way out of it. So we've got to name it. Uh, and we got to respond to it, and we got to we got to come up with strategies and, and principles to to help us uh, lead the way out of the inequality in housing. You know, I don't. I'd love to get to the point where the rate of homeownership between white households and black households is equal. Um, that's a long long ways away, uh, but I know it has to get better than it, the the disparity you know, worst in the nation disparity that we have now. Uh, if we're ever going to have the equitable community that we claim. We want, and that we think that we are. Um, so, so developing these strategies again, the special purpose credit program, uh, because HUD was a little bit more flexible in their rules and really said it, it is okay to be race specific in your lending practices, uh, um, or at least giving us more flexibilities if you can if you can justify the the, the case statement uh, of why there was you know historic patterns of discrimination and and uh, barriers to to achieving housing. Um, so, so again, we're, we're working through this. We have an initial core, cohort. We sent out letters to, uh, to our uh, foundation of black households identified on our, on our current pipeline. And so far, I think 44 folks have responded to say, yep, uh, this would make a difference for us to be able to buy a home and, and let's go there. So uh, probably drifted from your, your original question, but, um, again, it's just being intentional. Um, I say as intentional about fixing the problem as we were in creating it in the first place.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you you mentioned the internal work that you all have done and have continued to do. Can you just say a little bit more about that? That That's obviously an important piece. At, at our work here at, at PPL, I mean, we we started our equity journey. And again, the, the distinction between internal work and external, what are you doing about it? Both really important. For us, we really wanted to walk the walk internally and you and I certainly started doing that work at the city together as well but but can you just say a little bit more about how you all are tackling that internally at uh, at
1: Twin Cities Habitat yeah you know again we we went from having a consultant that came in and led some of you know we'd have lunch and learns and we'd have you know the again the IDI work we had a, a diversity equity and inclusion team that, you know, started doing, we call them action learning projects where we would actually ask ourselves through, through an equity lens, you know, how, how is this practice that we have? So we had, um, we had home celebrations when a family got the key to the house. Uh, we stepped back and said, okay, that's, that serves uh, really well, fits in with kind of our, our, our predominantly white volunteer base and they love it and all that. Is it working for our families? Uh, let's ask that question let's let's see what they would like us to do uh, uh, we've had sweat equity as a as kind of a requirement of of getting a house uh, a habitat developed house um, and again one of the number one things our volunteers say oh we love working side by side with this family well we said does it work for our families if you're a single mom and you're already working two jobs uh, and now you gotta have 400 hours of, of volunteer work to, to be able to get a house, maybe that's not the best thing to do. So again, we're just walking through almost everything that we do through an equity lens uh, and asking ourselves, is, is this, who is this serving? Uh, is it advancing our mission? Uh, there's a lot of internal work, but one of the things I did several years ago is I said, I need somebody whose job it is to wake up in the morning and think about how to make Habitat an equity organization. So we did bring in a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, and actually just hired the second person in that spot, uh, uh, Danielle Duncan, who's just dynamite, and and uh, getting her, her 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 feet underneath her, um, and uh, and uh, so it's it's internal, it's external, it's how we relate to people in the community. Uh, we we heard early on that people in the African American community said, well you're not really there for us. You're, you know, you, you primarily serve immigrant families. Um, and it's like, well, no, that, that, that is true that we've We're primarily serving immigrant families, but it wasn't because we weren't serving, you know, didn't want to serve or couldn't serve or wouldn't serve black families, but we just needed to, you know, we needed to, to be aware that that was the reputation and community. So just going out, being present, doing everything from being out on Selby Avenue during jazz fest to, uh, um, you know, to going to churches and to you know talking with leaders in the community, just really understanding, um, this is a pretty white, historically a very white-led organization. <laughs> I go to national conferences and um, and it is a very white organization nationally, um, and and the problem is when you do that, you may be well intentioned, but you may be causing more harm than your than your than good that you're doing. Well, it's
0: a really powerful uh, model and, and vision, and, and something again that we really, really believe. Again, PPL as a historic white-led organization um, with kind of charity-based roots, part of our journey has been how do we how do we turn this organization into a platform for community right voice and community development across all all that we do, and so for us that that holistic journey of let's, let's do our work internally, build cultural competence internally, but also concurrently, you know, focus intently on how do we show up in the community and with community, and what exactly are we doing to move the needle on disparities, and that is the action piece of it. And organizations, from our perspective, you need to be active on all of those fronts, right? You don't just pick one off and say, well, we're just gonna do board training or we're just going to do you know showing up at community festivals you need to be active on all of those
1: absolutely right yeah i mean there's not you know there's there's nothing wrong with being you know at the communities festivals but if that's where you end it and you think that that somehow fulfills your your obligation uh, to advance racial equity in community You're fooling yourself that's that's not it so you know you you used to describe it or or you know this is knee to knee eye to eye this is this is the hard work you you know you've got to be in conversation you've got to be willing you got to be vulnerable you've got to be willing to say you know yeah we we screwed up on that one you know this this is you know we've or we've got we've got damage to to undo um and be willing to to own that and if you and if you're willing to do that it's not you know, there's no magic light switch that you can turn on um but it, it eventually uh you will be illuminated
0: yeah yeah so uh you you mentioned earlier the importance of of kind of some of the systemic changes and and i i know you've been active in uh the the home coalition uh which is kind of a statewide group that's been active advocating for home ownership changes policy funding what are some of the what are some of the ideas coming out of that work and particularly some of the policy changes that you think, you know, need to be made that, that can further advance the work of, of home ownership for, for black, for foundational black families?
1: Yeah, well, for, first of all, I think that the work at home and others have done under Governor Dayton's leadership, he had the housing task force. I think there was a lot of um, lifting up of the issue of why housing matters uh and understanding it from it's not just an urban versus you know greater minnesota issue it's not just a um this is certainly not a left or right or or black versus white it is a all of our problem <laughs> we need more housing in the state we are we are woefully short by tens of thousands of units of, of housing and and the impact that that has uh, on our on our you know economic environment um, the ability for businesses to to grow. I was, up, you know, speaking with uh, the head of Polaris uh, several years ago, and I said, you know, we're growing sales for because we can't do we don't have housing for for folks here, um, and uh, you know, so understanding that standpoint. So we so that the conversation's been elevated. we had some success in getting at least language in bills last year at the state legislature for more resources to go into housing of course, that went nowhere because they they couldn't decide what time of day it was um, but ultimately, you know for us to do this work not only is the awareness of, of the racial equity component, but just that you know what it takes money at at the end of the day, it costs us two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars to build a unit of housing um, and you know that resource has got to come from somewhere if the family can only afford hundred and seventy five thousand dollars on for for a mortgage that money th- that gap has got to come from somewhere we need more resources for housing in the state um if we're ever going to get out from underneath that that vast deficit of, of need
0: yeah uh, i also know you all have been experimenting with some different kinds of housing um not just assuming that in your building at least not just assuming that the Detached single-family home. A- any uh, any insights on on other oh. ways
1: you are thinking about some of that? Yeah, I mean we're we're looking at you know this is spaghetti throwing time. We're just you know we're we're willing to try anything and everything if we if we believe that there's a market. We have not built uh, we have built you know uh, quad you know townhomes and and we're we're working with City of Lakes Land Trust to do 18 units in the Harrison neighborhood over in North Minneapolis. Yeah um that is uh you know so we're, we're hoping to work in a large way over on the east side uh, of st paul at the uh, old hill Crest golf course and um you know if i have if i have my way we'll do 150 units of housing over there that's bigger than anything we've ever done before mm-hmm. um but that's you know that's beginning to get to the scale where you need to go so we're so we're exploring um you know different ways we looked at uh, accessory dwelling units um, decided that probably wasn't where we wanted to go um, I asked the question yesterday we had a we had a our leadership meeting and we talked about you know what do we need to take uh, uh, off the table you know just you know what do we need to focus on And 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 uh, you know we looked at doing uh, with the new Minneapolis zoning ordinances where you can do a, a triplex on, on a lot um, but the question I, I come back to is you know are, is this still playing around the margins or is this gonna really bring it to, to a scale that allows us to, to actually address the housing shortage in this community.
0: Yeah, 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 that's great. Well, uh, there was a wonderful article by Neil St. Anthony just uh, recently here about Habitat's growth and, and just uh, uh, curious as to kind of what what do you see, you know, in the next, let's say, you know, uh, three to five years for Habitat. What, what kinds of things are you
1: thinking about as you look forward? Well, I, I think that, you know, first and foremost, uh, that that base model of us building houses with partners uh, and volunteers will continue because that is that is the, you know, the, the the kind of the foundation of who Habitat is. But I think of it from the perspective of just the real estate market in general, the vast majority of housing transactions are existing housing stock, not new houses. And so that's why when we built this partnership with Bremer that allowed us to to work with families to buy in the open market, uh, I see that as the greatest opportunity for expansion. Uh, that's the, that's where we, I think, can get to the numbers that we hope to that that start to really address the the fundamental inequality and in homeownership in this community. Really interesting partnerships with Dakota County. Uh, They're uh, working with uh, Tony Schertler, the director of housing down there who uh, had a bunch of scattered site uh, section eight houses where we're buying up those and converting those into homeownership that frees up resources for the housing agency down there to build multi-tenant uh, section eight units, which is what they prefer, easier for them to manage. We have this amazing partnership that uh, really was just a manna from heaven kind of relationship with Roseville, where the city of Roseville sent out letters to, uh, to homeowners of homes that are valued in kind of our sweet spot price range. And said, "If you're thinking of a home, you know, not forcing anybody to buy. If you're thinking of selling your home, consider selling it to Habitat for Humanity." Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they, and then Roseville, the city itself, has stepped in with resources for us to rehabilitate those homes and to do gap financing uh we started that this year uh, We thought maybe we'd do one or two of those we've already I think we're up to nine or ten uh, and now we're uh, continuing that relationship and starting to have conversations with some of the other suburban communities if they would be willing to do the, the same thing so it's really uh look like, at this is such a multifaceted nothing short of crisis we have a housing crisis in this in this community uh, we have it across the country and across the globe but but at the end of the day it's these you know, these out of the box thinking that's gonna it's gonna be necessary for us to get where we need to go.
0: yeah, well, it's really exciting and and uh, uh, I, I can feel your energy around it and and when I, oh. I I always like to ask this last question about what do you feel hopeful about looking forward? Um, and certainly from your perspective as having been mayor for a dozen years, having now been through, multiple years of a pandemic and multiple pandemics, plural, uh, including racial unrest as one of those pandemics. Um, 100%. What, 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 when you look forward here in the community, in, in addition to the work that Habitat's doing in, and the incredible importance of ownership, what, what what, are you hopeful about looking forward?
1: Well, I, I you know, look at you, for all the reasons you mentioned, sometimes it's really hard to be hopeful. <laughs> it is just uh, we have been beaten down. Uh, over the last few years, between the pandemics of of COVID and and racism and and uh, um, unrest, but I look at the the team around me. I look at the folks that are going. Oh my gosh, we're we're being unleashed to to try new things. We're being um, we're being encouraged to be creative. We're being encouraged to uh, and and naming this, this this with specificity the racial equity component that has has given people a, a different sense of purpose it's really been uh it's been uplifting because people have stepped up to the plate uh they have said we yep we love this vision we're going to go for it and we're going to try it um and others uh, will come clearly <laughs> you know getting a, a check from Ms. Mackenzie scott for for 13 and a half million dollars unsolicited uh that was a little uplifting
0: but by by uh, the way,
1: I, I'm sure you gave her our number as well. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 well, I, I said, was this supposed to be sent to Paul Williams? I, I'm sure it was meant for me. Yeah, um, awesome. but but I I look at that and say, okay, will others follow? Uh, will Will others understand? Um, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen is we get that gift from Mackenzie Scott and people say, oh, you don't need our money. It's it, it's only a transformative gift if people continue to do what they have done in the past to support the work that we're doing. Um, but it allows us to try new things. Um, and that gives me hope as well.
0: Well, and that, that is so exciting. And, and, um, uh, I, I know you're using it in, in transformative and catalytic, catalytic ways. And, and it's, it's ironically, it's not easy to accept a gift that big and to really use it in, Catalytic ways. Uh, so, so bravo. Um, well, that,
1: the the hardest thing with a gift like that is to not just plug it in and in into yeah. ways that you've know already been doing. Yep. And, yep. and uh, I've had that conversation with my finance team a lot. Well, we could use this to fill this gap or that. And I said no. Yep. This this money is going to be used for racial equity and advancing mm-hmm. black homeownership. Mm-hmm. And I said we're not buying paper clips unless that paper clip is binding a a, a portfolio for. For uh, an African American household buying a house, I mean that's so we've been very clear on that. Um, but you're right; it, it's it, you got to be careful when you when you do receive something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. that you have intentionality around that as well. Well, thank you,
0: Chris. Just great discussion. Great stuff happening. Really uh, uh, grateful for your partnership with with PPL. It, it means a lot to us, and it's uh, I think really really productive.
1: Um, and And i'm just amazed that you still talk to me after being my deputy mayor for four years so i appreciate that paul thank you it's taken a while (laughs) we are
0: we are so great discussion thank you all for listening in today i'm paul williams from ppl and this has been the race place and policy podcast we'd love to hear what you think uh, as well so drop us a note at communications at ppl-inc.org We hope you'll subscribe and sign up for notifications from wherever it is that you get your podcasts. You can always find us on our website at ppl-inc.org. And until next time, stay stay safe, stay engaged, uh, and be well. Thank you so much.